This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Frank Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation. And soon we're going to be joined by Karen Middleton here in The Party Room. Karen's the chief political correspondent at the Saturday paper. And it turns out having a new government in town means there's plenty to talk about, PK. And the energy crisis is the topic that just keeps on keeping on. It really does. And we know there are no quick fixes. We kept getting told that. But also, if you look at the evidence, it doesn't look like you can fix this quickly, to be fair. AEMO will now restore the energy market uh, this week, um, ending what really was quite a spectacular, sensational chapter where it intervened in an unprecedented way, and that word can definitely be used too loosely, but in this case, it was unprecedented to see this intervention at that whole national scale or the whole, you know, East Board, East East Coast energy market, where they intervened and took control over output and pricing. Now, that is ending uh, because the immediate crisis is over, but there's one proviso that the energy providers behave themselves because the Prime Minister himself said that they were gaming the system. What were they doing? Uh, deliberately not bidding into the system, withholding supply that they had, supply that they had when mm-hmm. we were warned of energy blackouts um, because they didn't like the price that they were being offered and so therefore wanted to be compensated at the highest level, it seemed. Uh, the Prime Minister saying that was a gaming of the system. Then there was that dramatic intervention. And now the AEMO says, okay, we'll bring the market back online, but we'll watch it very closely. I spoke to the Australian Industry Group Chief um, Innes Willox, and he says, well, he doesn't have high trust in this. Uh, they should be ready and poised to intervene at any point. That there is a big lack of trust in the system at the moment. Um, we're going to get into this a bit later, but it has been really the big dominant story. Yeah, and you get the feeling that I mean, AEMO is is no pushover. So if they're ready to go back, I, I imagine there's been some pretty tough talking behind the scenes with the energy providers. We're talking about you know the big gas companies and coal-fired energy providers, basically saying, yeah, yeah, sorry about that, sorry about that, promise not to do it again, promise to behave ourselves, so let's wait and see. But like I said, PK, there are challenges and promises galore for the new government to deal with. The upside of that is that this first flash of government, we're talking policy, 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 with little space or patience for political sniping. I think for for most of us, that's the upside. But the challenges are real and they are enormous. Let's consider inflation on the rise, as are interest rates, of course, on the rise. This week, the RBA Governor Philip Lowe delivered more bad economic news. Nothing we didn't know really, but to hear him say it is always sobering. Rates will keep going up, which means more pain for households. He couldn't say yet how high they will go because, you know, it's an ongoing analysis of, of how the economy is travelling. Um, but he did, he suggested that market expectations of 4%, rates getting to 4% are overblown. 
but he didn't rule it out altogether. In fact, I thought this was interesting. He conceded that the market's got its predictions right more times than the Reserve Bank lately. So in other words, it was kind of like he goes, mm, maybe their guess is better yeah. than mine, <laughs> which is not hugely comforting when you consider that official interest rates right now are still below 1%. And at the Reserve Bank meeting next month, the governor said they will definitely go up again, could be by as much as 0.5%. So to put that into real dollars, for those of you who don't have a mortgage and aren't so sort of finely tuned to this, a half a percent rate rise on a mortgage of 800000 is another 200 bucks a month. That's on top of the 200 a month that's just been hiked in June. So it's a lot of pain, PK, for a lot of people. And yet, despite these rising costs of living factors, the Reserve Bank Governor's other key message this week is that we shouldn't get in the habit of big wage rises to try and keep up with these spiralling costs. After years of urging employers to increase people's wages, the Reserve Bank Governor is now signalling we've got to put a lid on our expectations of wages keeping up with high inflation, basically trying to send a message to the new government that wage growth must be capped if we hope to avoid a 1970s-style wage price spiral. I'd been concerned for a number of years that the rate of wage growth we had previously in the 2 to 2.5% range was too low, meaning that it was going to be hard for us to achieve the inflation target and it was diminishing the society's sense of uh, collective prosperity. So I just think it's important to remember that the steady state wage increases in Australia should be around 3.5%. But if um, wage increases become common in the 4 and 5% range, then inflation it's going to be harder to return inflation to 2.5%. So there he was, speaking as starkly and as clearly as a Reserve Bank Governor can really and and does, saying wage growth should be capped effectively at 3.5% to avoid risking further inflation. And PK, the government seems to be buying it. Look, the government will not. This is the new Albanese government. Their entire election campaign was on a few issues, but wages was really a centrepiece of their argument. And, you know, the big declaration Mm. after the Fair Work Commission did award the big pay increase of 5.2% to minimum wage workers that, you know, what was Tony Burke's language? He said that the era of of trying to keep wages down, of suppressing wages is over um, and that this was a deliberate policy uh, and, and attitude of this new government that would be advocating. Now, they have to straddle a difficult line now, Fran. They have the Reserve Bank Governor very publicly making this statement about it being capped at 3.5%. On the other side, they've got unions who are red hot with rage that they have been, you know, in many cases dealing with the difficult side of this pandemic. People feel very undervalued in in a lot of sectors, in the public sector, teachers, um, workers in hospitals, We, you know, across the board, and that there is a sense of being uh, not treated right and that this is the right time to catch up. So you'll notice that the words of the Albanese government will be very careful. But I want to say this, they won't completely move away from talking about wages because that will be a breach of trust with voters. They will just have to be more nuanced about it. And they will say, and they're right on this one, uh, they didn't argue for inflation wage increase beyond the minimum wage workers, right? Yeah, you, you recall right. that they they did actually they specifically they specific. said it should be to just the lowest paid several hundred thousand Australians, mm, and that was deliberate then, and that will be more emphasised than ever now, um, and they will try to keep their powder dry about just where it should land. Uh, at the same time, 
they have promised to have this employers and unions getting together in this big uh, job summit where they they discuss strategies. I suppose given the current dilemma we're in, and it's a, it is a genuine dilemma, you don't want a situation where in where wages are chasing inflation and you get into a spiral. And now I'm not saying well, I know. Well, how are, did Sally McManus describe that proposal <laughs> to you on our in breakfast? Yeah, I know. I'd love that that you listen, Frank. And I say I know people listening are thinking, oh, it's Fran at home. Yeah, yeah, you I were. Was, I am. <laughs> you were. You are a radio lover uh, forever. Um, yeah, so basically she, what would she call it? The boomer. She says um, it's a boomer fantasy. It's boomer a boomer fantasy. fantasy. That's it. A boomer fantasy. So what she's talking about when she says that, other than it just being a cool line um, that, you know, will resonate and people pick up, is that the idea that we could go back to the 1970s is premised on a different market where the union movement da- did have enormous power at setting wages in a different way and that she doesn't have that power. So that's where the fantasy line comes from. And that's all from. about the fact that the union movement, the ACTU, used to represent, you know, the bulk of the Australian workforce. Now it's a tiny percentage of the Australian workforce. So it doesn't have the capacity to have that influence. I mean, they used to have a, a, a seat at the board of the Reserve Bank board. They don't anymore. So they are, you know, not in that position of power and control. No. And, and she was critical of the fact that there is no... Uh, workers' representative on the RBA board. She says they're out of touch, that uh, Philip Lowe is out of touch. He doesn't understand what's happening at the bargaining tables for workers and that this idea that wages are, are contributing at all to inflation is fantasy and is not reality. So she will continue. And I actually put to her, will there be more strikes? We're seeing teachers, for instance, strike in New South Wales in unprecedented ways where independent school teachers are also joining with state school teachers. So this is a big movement. Yeah. And she says... Well, if bosses don't respond, yeah, there will be more industrial action. So this is, yeah, they might have not huge representation of the trade union movement of workers, but we're seeing a big flexing of industrial muscle now. And I think it does come off the back of a long period of wages being sluggish and a big sense of frustration. But managing that, again, back to the Albanese government, the the political dimensions is difficult. So I see, you know, as a political analyst as well, the pathway being this summit, you know, putting the onus on the big players to try and nut out some kind of compromise so that we don't get into maybe not a 70s spiral if she's right that that's an exaggeration, but any situation where inflation keeps growing, can't get it un- under control, and then what's the consequence? We know what it is. RBA has told us more interest rate rises. That's true, and there's a lot of focus on this sort of message, strong message from Philip Lowe about the 3.5% cap on wages. But to be honest, PK, I think if a lot of workers started to get on a regular basis a three and a half percent wage rise, they'd be happy because most have got nothing like that for the last eight years, you know, way below that. Now, three and a half percent wage rise is still a real wage cut. If inflation is at six percent now, it'll be seven percent by the end of the year, I think. But then if the um, the forecasts are right and God knows they haven't been right much lately, you know, it's going to start trending down. But some kind of constant steady wage rise at a level of three and a half percent, I think people would be um, to some degree mollified by that if it comes with something else. So what could that be? You've talked about this employment summit. We think that's scheduled for September. Anthony Albanese had promised it in the first 100 days. It'll be the employers and the employees. But it's got to come down really to the government. And, you know, way back in the, in the 80s, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating worked with the ACTU and they came up with the accord. And the accord was an agreement by the union movement to, to, to put a cap on wages, to stop the wage spiral of the 70s. And they did that 
they persuaded workers by giving them something called the social wage. Can Anthony Albanese start to offer positive policies that people can see will make a difference in their lives that might go cap in hand with a 3.5% wage rise? You know, back then it was compulsory superannuation. People could understand and better Medicare access how that would work for them. What might it be today? Well, Anthony Albanese has got policies around cheaper childcare, better childcare. He's got... Labor came in with promises about free uh, training places at TAFE and, and other educational institutions. There are issues like that and policies like that where a government could be talking, you know, domestic violence leave, for instance, is another pledge by the new government. If they can make a package that persuade the workforce, I suppose, that this is a government working for them to try and bring their cost of living down and their quality of life up for now and in the future maybe that's starting to look at something that won't be be called the accord, I'm sure, but has that kind of sort of positive power to it. I don't know. That's the sort of tone I think that Anthony Albanese might be hoping to start to strike at this job summit. Now, Fran, just before we bring in our guest, Karen Middleton, Fran, it's become clear to me this week and just more broadly uh, that the new Albanese government has at the same time really ushered in uh, I feel a sense of of not only a new environment, but a new kind of sentiment in the community. And that's not just my anecdotal vibe, although it's partly my anecdotal vibe, but it's also based on a new new study, which has shown that the majority of Australians, I think it was what, 73.3%. And this is, you know, good, robust research, can I say, it's not just some random poll are feeling positive about the country's direction after the 2022 federal election. What do you make of that? Do you think there is a sense of that? I've been around a long time and I think there's always a sense of that when you get a change of government from one side of politics, particularly to the other, you know, change the government, change the nation. This country voted overwhelmingly for a change of government, got that. Now it's a it's a different looking kind of parliament that we've got. It didn't vote overwhelmingly for Labor. Their primary vote was, I think, the lowest it's ever ever been and certainly the lowest for a government. But it voted for a change. And there's always a sense of relief, I think, that's called the honeymoon period. That's why governments have what's called new governments have a honeymoon period. But these sentiments can change really quickly. The government knows that. It suggests there's a bit of a wellspring of trust and optimism. The government now has to deliver on that. It goes back to the ideas I was just talking about. Anthony Albanese's um, slogan in during the election campaign was, you know, a better future. And he had these promises, the sort of things I was talking about there around childcare and aged care and Medicare, to try and persuade people that a Labor government would deliver a better future for them and for their lives. He won't be able to deliver on that immediately. He won't be able to deliver, you know, wage rises for everybody immediately. He can't stop interest rates going up immediately, that's for sure. But can he do things that people can see are going to make a positive difference? I mentioned the accord type arrangement there. Can he start bringing and delivering pretty quickly on some of these promises that people tuned into that could see could make a difference to their everyday lives? I think he needs to be doing that. He needs to be moving forward very quickly, and they are, and deliver on things like the pledge on the National Integrity Commission, things that people tuned into. He's already moved so quickly to lock in with the UN and sign the protocol on the higher level of emission cuts by 2030. 30. So I think the government, new government is very cognizant of this, that they, they don't have long to prove themselves and try and lock in this trust. And I think they need to, and that, that's what they're trying to do. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. Should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> K 
Karen Middleton, Chief Political Correspondent at the Saturday Paper. Welcome to the party room. Thank you very much. Karen, it's great to have you here. I know how busy you are. You churn out all those features for the Saturday Paper every <laughs> every week. It's incredible. But look, no time to pussyfoot around here. Let's go to the biggest challenge, I think, facing this government and all of us right now, Karen, the energy crisis. We've seen the Albanese government get some agreement from the states at National Cabinet around energy, including on something called the capacity mechanism, which, you know, long story short, is a payment to energy providers to make sure they have enough power on hand at any time for a demand response. The Morrison government had been discussing it with the states. The Albanese government seems to have sealed the deal around the table. But there's some controversy around it, Karen, because it could allow government payments to fossil fuel energy providers to have power on hand. And that could certainly be dangerous for the Albanese government, couldn't it? Who, you know, this was a, a, an election result for Anthony Albanese that had a big message about climate. Yeah, that's true. I think the point is that this mechanism is there because it's it's underpinning a transition to more reliance on renewables, and that would be the argument that they will push. And they've long said that that, that transition is going to take time and that coal has a place in the mix for the time being. So I'm, I'm sure that's what they'll argue if if that challenge is put to them. And the the issue, I suppose, is that it's different states uh, and, and territories are at different stages of that transition and some states are more reliant on others than fossil fuel on fossil fuels. So some states will be more inclined to have fossil fuels in the mix for that um, underpinning that demand than others. And I here in the ACT they've moved effectively to like hundred percent renewables, but in other states they're they're a long way behind that and not inclined to move to hundred percent anyway. So I think it's hard to it's hard to see them getting a universal method right across the country at this point while we're in this transition situation. And we could have been transitioning a lot earlier than we were to renewable energy um, because of the policy failures we've seen in the last decade or so. Yeah. And Karen, there seems to be, to me, real really a much more open dialogue between the states and territories and the federal government than we've seen for a while, which I think was really on display at the National Cabinet meeting last week. Let's just take a listen to what the New South Wales Liberal Premier, Dominic Perrottet, had to say. This is something that's been the too hard basket for too long, as the Prime Minister has said. And this is not about money. It's about working together on substantial reform. And uh, I thought today's National Cabinet uh, was refreshingly collaborative. Refreshingly collaborative. Now, he was talking about other issues there too, but the point is... I detected a kind of hostility towards the end of that National Cabinet. Yes, at the start when Scott Morrison started it and they're working obviously on the COVID response, there was a great sort of spirit of working together, but it sort of declined. And particularly on the issues of energy, very specifically, there was a kind of suspicion at the federal government, even from the Liberal state of New South Wales. Do you think the states and territories would have been as open to the idea of including coal and gas in the capacity mechanism, at least as a backup, if it was a different prime minister? Is it because it's actually Labor that it's changed the, the, the mood and the optics on this? Well, it's probably because of a change of government that we're talking about this at all, because the previous government wasn't wedded to this kind of transition in this way to renewable energy. So it kind of wasn't even a conversation that was being had, I think, and that was perhaps some of the frustration because even the New South Wales government, which is a, you know one of only two conservative governments left around the country now, uh, was was committed to um, sort of progressive policies on climate action and and, re- and renewable energy. So. 
maybe they sensed that actually a roadblock that was in the way of that is out of the way. But it is intriguing, isn't it, to see the governments of two different stripes, New South Wales and the federal government, getting along well, and indeed New South Wales and the Victorian government doing that announcement, joint announcement on, on um, childcare and, and kindy the other day. So we're, we're seeing some unexpected collaborations and maybe uh, the New South Wales government with an election upcoming early next year and the federal government see it as being in their mutual interest to um, cooperate on these matters right at the moment. Yeah, well, both those state governments, Victoria and New South Wales, sure they're the, the most popular states that have got a lot of sway. They're of different political stripes, but they both face elections, don't they? That's right. So that's in their thinking. Karen, you wrote the book on Anthony Albanese, literally, you wrote his biography. I, I want to go deeper into this idea of, of Anthony Albanese's more collaborative style and how he might bring that into his prime ministership. We've got a new makeup of this parliament, we've got a huge crossbench, the major parties have fewer numbers, potentially therefore less power. Now we have Bridget Archer, a moderate Liberal MP, saying she wants to work with the Labor government on the new Integrity Commission legislation. She's so reaching across the aisle to work with the government on the federal ICAC. How different and how possible is that for an idea, such such an overt offer or request? Is it going to be part of the design of a major government policy, do you think? Will Anthony Albanese go for this? Well, I think there are a few things that would have been unheard of under the previous government because they were not into collaborating across the aisle, as it were, at all. Uh, so that wouldn't have happened previously. I think Anthony Albanese is interested in collaboration generally. I think he thinks that he sets an objective and then figures out how to get there, in my experience, and, and he's quite happy to take sort of smaller steps in the direction rather than one giant leap that isn't going to take people with him. So he'll be, he'll be working out the most effective way to achieve what he wants to achieve. He'll also be thinking about the politics of that. In the working out the most effective way, then collaboration may well be a part of that. He's certainly been talking since the election a lot and he's still talking about the need to have unity and the need to, to do politics differently and that would certainly be a demonstration of that. And I think that's not only because he thinks it could be effective, it's also a political imperative now, as how I've been describing it, because the electorate sent a very clear message that they want things done differently, that they didn't like the way things were being done. And so if he isn't seen to be acting on that, they'll mark him down, I expect. So there's politics at afoot here too. And when you go broader than that to the crossbench, and particularly those we call the teals, uh, I think it'll be in Anthony Albanese's political interests to be seen to be trying to work closely with them, even though they're not in balance of power, strictly speaking, because it, he'll be he'll be wanting to give them some wins and indeed maybe the likes of Bridget Archer as well in the Liberal Party, uh, because it, it, it puts the Liberals in a difficult position. If Bridget Archer is, is taking a position that is seen to be perhaps not 100% in line with her conservative leadership, then that puts some strain on the Liberal side of politics, which I'm sure Anthony Albanese wouldn't be unhappy about. And equally, if he's giving the Teal candidates in particular, the independents, some political wins, that helps them entrench their positions, which keeps the Liberal Party out of those seats. So don't assume he's only thinking about this in terms of effectiveness of, of uh, in policy terms. You shock me. You shock me. thinking about it in political terms as well. He's a highly political animal, there's no doubt, and he's a yeah. long-term thinker. So I think all of these things would be coming into play. Of course he is. Of course he is. Um, but, but he's also, yeah, he's, he seems at this stage, because it's early days, but to be aware of the fine line between playing the hard politics but also looking like you're not, right? Because That's public, right. One public might say doesn't like it. 
That's right. There might be a contradiction between the two, the approach rhetorically, and then the, oh, I wouldn't be unhappy if things got difficult for the Liberals approach. It's so, tricky for Peter Dutton too, though, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you don't want your MPs crossing the floor because that could make you look weak. But at the same time, you've got to keep a party room together. You've got to keep at least some semblance of a broad church because they've just been hammered at the election, lost all their sort of many of their moderate MPs. So you've got to keep the few you've got left happy. People have taken different messages from the election result and one of them clearly is that some of the moderates are saying is we have to go further on emissions, for instance, we have to move on national integrity. So he's got to, I mean, in opposition, it's a lot easier for an opposition leader to allow members to cross the floor without it being a big deal. Barnaby Joyce used to do it all the time in opposition. It's different in government, isn't it? So this might be a sort of a flex um, built into the system that's going to work for Peter Dutton. That's right. Although it's interesting, he said very strongly on his, at his first news conference after becoming opposition leader, we're not going to be, you know, the Conservative Party or the Moderate Party, we're the Liberal Party and, mm. you know, set the middle course. But you haven't actually seen an enormous amount of that yet. You've seen much of the same kind of approach, which is attacking and and pressing uh, perhaps a more conservative uh, line. Now, they haven't had a chance to regroup and reset on policy or even, you know, politically and, and work out the approach they might take. But maybe that, as you say, is an opportunity for moderates to, to speak their mind. But I suspect from what we've seen from Bridget Archer, she, she won't be just satisfied with gestures. <laughs> she she actually wants, you know, to get things done. Whether she'd be happier as just be being the token moderate who's um, helping to keep the moderates in the, in the tent mm. or whether she'd be pushing for a, an actual policy change. I mean, I suspect it would be the latter. Yeah, mm. and, and on the other side of politics, Anthony Albanese, he might be able to get a real meaningful relationship with someone like Bridget Archer or uh, Helen Haynes, the independent. You know, she wants to be the chair of the, the Committee on Federal Integrity Commission. Yeah. Um, is is Anthony Albanese going to give her? That's a big prize in the scheme of government. Mm. There'd be a lot of government MPs who'd want that prize. Yeah. Helen Haynes has asked for it. I think personally Anthony Albanese would be a mug not to give it to Helen Haynes. She's the one with the private members bill and, and yeah. you so set, done all the foundational work on this and it would be very symbolic. But what do you reckon? Well, I think that's probably where they'll land. I don't think they've made a call on that yet, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they land there in the same vein that I just said, you know, giving independence a, a win. She's not one of the teals, strictly speaking. She's been around one, yeah. one term longer than them, but in the same vein, pre-teal. she did the work. She had pre-teal. She was orange, actually. If you want to really put it, split it down to colours, Kathy McGowan's colours, voices off. But, um, it, you know, she did the work. She drafted a bill and I don't think they want to adopt her Bill Holus Bolus. They want to draft their own. This is a way of incorporating her and and also sending that message that they're listening to the independents. And that that is a message not just directly to the independents themselves. That's a message to the electorate Mm, too. Yeah, it certainly is. Look, we started the podcast um, when we were just talking together um, before you joined us, Karen, uh, talking about wages. And that's been really the big story, I think, of the week and the economy. Um, We were discussing the the kind of changing inflationary pressures, the RBA governor's speech and the kind of consequences on wages. What's the onus here on the Albanese government? They made wages a big issue. The RBA, clearly the RBA governor doesn't want them to go beyond 3.5%. There's obviously big pressure on inflation, interest rates, warnings around all of this. How does the Albanese government straddle this? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? They went out hard on wages in the campaign. 
Uh, I was at that press conference when Anthony Albanese said absolutely to the question about whether he would support 5.1% pay rise for minimum wage earners. We've now got a 5.2% decision. How much further do they go? They face criticisms already that they're sort of crab walking away from the principle that wages should keep up with inflation because of endorsing what the Reserve Bank governor said. It, it is going to be a, a complicated message to manage going forward, given that in, that we're not seeing inflation stopping where it is. We're expecting it to go a lot higher, up to 7%, the governor warned a week or so ago, or the other day. So um, wages are not going to be that high. I mean, even Sally McManus is saying, from the ACTU, is saying they can't, we can't expect 7% wage increases, we can't deliver them. So they have to manage the expectations and they have set expectations firmly on the point that Anthony Albanese kept making, which is no one left behind um, and no one held back. And he kept on emphasising that. So they'll be held to that point if if it seems that in a year or two's time, people are being left behind because wages cannot keep up with inflation. So there'll be a lot of pressure to get that inflation rate down very quickly so that the difference between the two is minimised and we do get more into the the 3% range, 3 to 4% range that the governor was talking about being, you know, he'd like to see pay rises with a 3 in front of them and indeed that's where they want they want inflation around 2 to 3% ultimately. But he, I think he was warning that's a, that's a little way off yet, a couple of years off potentially. Mm. So that period is going to be dangerous in between for the Albanese government. It's one of those issues that could come back to haunt them in the lead up to the next election if they haven't been seen to make good on this this idea that people need to not only keep up with inflation but try to get ahead. Uh, Karen, pressure's coming on the government from all directions um, and all, all the new ministers, many of them have still been pretty quiet and pretty invisible as they get across their portfolios. Not so Penny Wong. She's been racing around the region in particular and uh, and around the world, really getting a flying start to her portfolio. But there is another issue that's bobbed up here and that's around Julian Assange with the decision by the British government to allow the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States. That's being appealed, but the pressure is coming on the Albanese government to speak to the United States and urge them to drop the extradition and to basically both governments, UK and the US, bring Julian Assange back to Australia. Enough is enough. This seemed to be the sentiment of Anthony Albanese and some of his front benches when they were in opposition. Some of them are still standing by that publicly. But what do we know about how how committed, how determined um, Penny Wong and the, the Labor government are to try and talk to the their allies in the United States, talk to the Biden administration to say, okay, let's forget all this, let them come home to Australia. What do you think is going on? And, and, and I mean, it's not just Assange, of course, the Australian government presumably is already advocating for, you know, Yang Hung Zhong and Chen Lei who are detained in China and, and Sean Turnell. Pan, yeah. yeah, Sean Pan, Turnell yeah. in Myanmar. Yeah. But it's, this Julian Assange thing has gone very public. Yeah, look, I, I don't think the sentiment has changed that has been expressed publicly. I think both Anthony Albanese and others, but he he was sort of, you know, had the strongest rhetoric at one point in favour of of assisting Julian Assange. I don't think that sentiment has changed. What's changed now they're in government is uh, the best way to express that and the most effective way to achieve it. And so I think they've gone very quiet all of a sudden 
uh, because it's clear that speaking loudly on this particular case is not going to be effective. You know, we've seen in the past, we've, we've always been told in the past when there have been issues with Australian citizens detained abroad that quietly is is best, certainly initially, that quiet diplomacy is best. And there've been a, there's been a point in a number of cases where there's been frustration with that and a, and a suggestion that ultimately speaking out publicly and putting public pressure on will also be effective and you've got to judge at what point that is the case. That seems to have been the case with regimes that we don't share our politics with, that we don't mm. share a system with, like, like Iran and, and other countries mm. like that. I think it's more complicated for them with a system like the United States and the, and the United Kingdom, and we're dealing with our two closest allies, strategically speaking, here. Uh, so I think they're very nervous about getting offside with the Americans, but I think they're equally trying to find a way that they might be able to achieve this without the public you know, bellowing. Um, I, I suspect they think that this is that is not going to be yeah. effective either achieving the outcome they want, or in terms of relations with the Americans in particular. And they'll be wanting to they'll be wanting to finesse both of those things. So I, I suspect we are going to see it go quiet for a while, at least. So quiet for a while, absolutely, as they do the quiet diplomacy. But we do have a precedent, not obviously an identical case, but David Hicks and the work that John Howard did around all of that, Karen. And that ended up being quite public and it went on and on and on. And, and Howard ended up talking, wasn't it, to George W. Bush about, the, about that very issue? Yeah, directly to Bush, who he was very close to, of course. Yeah, so I think I think that's an example where it's the direct personal contact rather than megaphone that they like to talk about, which is not personal, that, that is broadcast from afar, that will have a, a greater effect. And Anthony Albanese has indicated he wants to go to the United States this year. So whether they are sort of opening channels of communication privately about this now and it's something he would raise in person or even like to have resolved by the time he got there, I don't know. But but that example of Hicks is an example where it was Prime Minister to President uh, and, and a lot of the work was done behind the scenes. Um, and I think it's been made clear that the Americans don't take kindly to having people yelling at them from across the Pacific. So I think the government certainly won't be trying to do that. Yeah, though there are every sign that Anthony Albanese and Joe Biden are developing quite a good relationship. I think that was on display. Anthony Albanese is leading an Australian government that is doing its best to prove to the United States and others the climate credentials. In other words, prove there's a new government in town, a good, valid, solid working partner. And he is a bit tired by his his words as opposition leader back in December when he said he did not see the point of American authorities' ongoing pursuit of Mr Assange. So he's a bit tired by that. You would think that he will need to do this directly with this, the Biden administration or Joe Biden himself or some very high in that administration. Yeah, and I guess, look, the, the, the incarceration of Mr Assange predates both governments in terms of the yeah. US administration that we have now and the Australian government that we have now. It was a previous pre president and previous prime ministers that have been involved in this and they've had a very different view. Now, these are two leaders who are of the same political stripe and they may decide that the benefit to Australia outweighs any detriment to the United States for in, in, in sending him home and letting him come back to Australia. So I'm sure that those kinds of negotiations, which will have to involve the politics at either end will be underway. And I, I see no indication that the Australian government has changed its view or its, its attitude to Julian Assange. What it is, has changed is its, its method and its approach. Karen, love picking your brain. Thanks for coming on The Party Room. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Karen. Great to have you. Bye. 
Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Well, we better upgrade that because he's not the Leader of the Opposition anymore, and next time the Parliament sits, which will be in July, Anthony Albanese, of course, will be the Prime Minister. But the bells are ringing, which means it's question time for us, and this week's question comes from Beck, who writes... Love the show and have been an avid listener for years. Would love your opinion on a current thought. The previous government was in power for nine years. The current government's been in power for four weeks. There are now multiple crises on multiple fronts, the most significant of which is the power crisis. My main question is what's the time frame that a previous government can wait to start to blame the new government for a current crisis? Is there a statute of limitations <laughs> or a particular time frame that an incoming government can rightly or wrongly lay critique at the previous government before they take responsibility for themselves? Uh, it's a brilliant question, isn't it? Friend, because every government minister at the moment and every opposition front bencher is grappling with this as we speak, don't you reckon? Yeah, and whenever there's a change of government, we they grapple with it. This is an interesting one because it's actually based on the punters, on voters. Already, I can reveal to you that I receive text messages uh, during RM breakfast for people when I interview government ministers saying, and, and these people who are sympathetic to Labor, they're not necessarily all sort of Labor haters or something, saying, oh, I'm sick of hearing them blame the previous government. Yes, they were hopeless, some of them even say, but get on with it. So there does get a point where people get sick of hearing that that statement, I think. Having said that, it depends on the issue. Um, so I think with the energy crisis, they've got a bit of leeway, to be honest, because I think there is a sense in the community, look at that vote, that climate change vote, that the previous government really bungled the whole thing. And they do have a bit of, I think, political momentum behind them and uh, and cover. On some other issues, perhaps not so much, including, I think, perhaps cost of living wages, those sorts of issues where they did make statements and promises and there are high expectations on delivery. I, I know that's a more complex answer maybe than you asked, but I do think it's not just a blanket thing. Some voters will give you a bit more time. I think I will give you a time frame based on my observation of watching a couple of change of governments now as I <laughs> as I age. Um, I can't believe I can say that, but I can. A couple of changes of governments. And what I can tell you is that, uh, like to me, it's like a six-month period, basically, where there is a bit of leeway. And then uh, it doesn't mean that you can't remember the legacy of the other government and the things they did wrong, but the kind of excuses or being able to use it too much it does erode. And, um, and it goes back one more point to how, how convincing or effective a government can be. I'll give you an example. Tony Abbott rubbed Labor's nose in, for instance, the carbon tax. And look how that issue's changed now, doesn't it turn? Or we know that after the Keating years, we saw debt and deficit being um, absolutely smashed uh, as an argument against Labor for a really long time. Mm. So some of those legacy issues become that and they can turn around, but it can take some time, Fran. So, yeah. yeah. I, I think the most effective example of that actually is Peter Costello talking about the Beasley black hole and he hung that around. Around Kim Beasley, who was the opposition leader, you know, after the um, the Keating government, the Beasley black hole. So, you know, new governments can do that very effectively if they're clever at it and can keep it running and it becomes a sort of a millstone around the neck of, of, of the opposition for a long time if done well. I think that's what 
Labor is trying to do and probably strategically would be smart to do around with this energy crisis, just brand it Scott Morrison's failure or the failure of the coalition government, 10 years of failure on energy policy. Um, but beyond that, I think people accept that. Beyond that, I think you're right. Uh, new governments, you know, do run out of time to be doing this. They've got a budget in October. I certainly think by the time that's done, there'll be no more patience for the government trying to blame the old government. It'll all be in this government's court. But once Anthony Albanese stands at the dispatch box sometime later in July, you know, he'll then be very clearly, visibly the Prime Minister and um, he'll need to be getting on with it. He will. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 all about the political framing, a lot of it, and how successfully, as you say, with the Peter Costello example, uh, you can kind of frame it. Uh, and again, that's deeply political and sometimes... Ah, it's a bit tiring. Uh, now, keep sending your questions in. We like getting them, and it's, it's a great way to end our podcast always with your reflections and questions. You can tweet them using the hashtag ThePartyRoom or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And remember, you can follow The Party Room on your ABC Listen app. That's right. That's it for The Party Room this week. It's lovely to have you back, Fran. Yeah, great to be back. See you, PK. See you, Fran.